You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. And so Revelation 20, uh, this is at the end of the book of Revelation. This is at the end of the Bible. This is a scene about the last judgment. And today we're going to talk about um, hell. And so it'll be a really encouraging, uplifting message this morning for everybody. Um, but in all seriousness, it's something we, we, I think, often avoid as preachers and teachers. Um, and so today we're going to talk about it. And this passage says something about judgment. And, and, and a, it mentions the, the term lake of fire. And we'll talk about that later today. Um, so it says this, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So it's, it's this beautiful um, picture of um, maybe beautiful allegorical, this, this image here of what John is, is seeing. And he said, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. So picture that, like a great white throne, just this awesome sight. And listen to this, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And you, I, I, I begin to wonder, is that figurative or literal? Like, how does an earth flee? Is this, just, I don't know, it's interesting and, and very, I don't know, allegorical or unusual or just this image in your head, at least in mine, of like the earth leaving its orbit because of the presence of God. Um, and then it says this, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray this morning. God, we um, want to be open to you and, and to be warned where we need warning, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to be comforted where we need to be comforted. And so God, this morning as we talk about the subject of uh, punishment and, and judgment in the afterlife, Lord, I pray that you do that. You comfort us where we need comfort and, and warn us where we need warning. And speak to us truth today as we, as we look at the word, as we study scriptures about these descriptions of these places. God, comfort us and, and warn us where we need those things this morning. So we do praise you. We worship you. And everybody said, Amen. Well, if you know anything about me and my humor, one of the things that I think is really funny all the time is when people misuse the word literally. <laughs> um, like, man, this lesson is so cool this morning. It is going to literally blow your mind. Well, not literally, but... Um, and we, we, we use, I think we are fascinated as a culture with the real and, and, and literal I mean, even our words like really, of course, is like real. And someone just says, yeah, it, it happened. And you have to say, oh, it literally happened. Or else you just think, oh, it might have happened. Um, you know, I literally had to burn my bridges to get here. I was like, what? Did, did you get arrested for arson when you did that? <laughs> um, literally, you got to keep your eye on the ball if you're going to hit it. It's like, gosh, you better, you know, get an eye patch. It's going to hurt. Um, literally yesterday, I put my foot in my mouth. It's like, wow, I didn't know you were that flexible. <laughs> Impressive. It's like, man, yeah, he was so mad. 
the, the poop literally hit the fan. <laughs> like, wow, that must have stunk. Literally. <laughs> but we're fascinated with this literal and figurative. And, and often we say, if it's really true, we'll just say literal. Like, oh, it's, it's true. It's not just true. It's really true. It's very true. It's literally true. And so when we talk about things in the afterlife, we often say, you know, do you believe in a literal hell? Or do you not believe in a literal hell? And it's a question that is, is hugely important to our society. Um, and, and people think, oh, how, you know, how could a God of love send people literally to a literal hell? And I think we as Christians have a message for that. We have something to say. And so uh, we're going to be studying the, the place of hell. And this morning, it's just, I'll keep bringing back these ideas of literal and figurative and kind of say that um, a big point is that it doesn't, just for something to be true, it doesn't have to be literal. I think about so many of the parables Jesus told. Um, is, are they true? Yes, of course, they're true. We as Christians, we believe in the parables and the truth, and the, but are they literal? Well, no, they're not literal. That's the whole point. They're, they're parables, they're stories, but they're true. And so today as we describe places of hell and, and what hell might look like, um, we'll keep going back and forth between like, okay, is this a literal description or is, is it a figurative description? And it's still, the, what truth is there here as we talk about hell and, and it's as, it as a place and it as an idea, um, it as a, a place of judgment and, and where, what does it say in the Bible? Where does it say in the Bible that um, these descriptions of what hell is? So that's just a little taste of what we're going to talk about today. So welcome to the Mill Sunday School. So glad that you're here. If you are new, uh, you can fill out a card like this. I think these are all on your tables. And if you fill it out and give it to the nice people as you leave, uh, they'll give you a gift bag. It has Brady Boyd's new book in it that he wrote called Sons and Daughters. I think it has a CD in there, a welcome CD. And, um, and I will email you if you would like, and I'll call you if you would like. There's, a, there's boxes to check on there. So we could be in contact, or I could tell you more about things going on for Sunday school or the mill or small groups, um, things like that. So um, that's that as far as announcements go. Um, just to continue to overview, we are in a huge systematic theological topic that has been going on for the last eight and a half months. So here we are, almost coming to a close of this um, topic. And so this month we're talking about the afterlife eschatology. Next month we're going to talk about end times eschatology, and that will conclude our whole series of systematic theology. So we're talking about eschatology, the end, the afterlife. The discussion question for you to turn to a little buddy and, and chat about, to think through, is to um, just answer this question. Maybe quite simply or just, um, just describe what is hell like? Some words, some phrases. Maybe you can remember some verses in the Bible of descriptions of what hell is like. So as a table, maybe assign someone to be a scribe and just write down words or phrases about what hell is like, or what you imagine hell to be like, or what other people tell you hell is going to be like. That'll get us thinking. So, ready, get set, discuss. I would love to hear some of your um, responses to what hell is going to be like. Um, maybe we'll just, I'll just have you yell something out and uh, some sort of description or word or phrase that describes hell. Anybody, Heath, what'd you guys say? Gnashing of teeth, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says not the weeping, just the gnashing. Um, what? 
where the worm does not die is the description in the Psalms, right? Maybe? Matthew 9? <laughs> What'd you guys say? Did anybody say fire? Fire. What did you guys say? Really bad? A what? Teletubby what? Teletubbies and Barney? Teletubbies and Barney? <laughs> Be pretty bad. Dan Porter? Yeah, who said, uh, Dan mentioned one that you probably is pretty common, a, a complete absence of God. Anybody say that? A lack of God's presence and who he is. Anything else? Anybody mentioned lava, lake of fire, miserable, torment. These are they're pretty bad words that describe a pretty, pretty bad place. And oftentimes this is what hell looks like, at least in my, if I was to be honest, this is a picture, an image of what comes to mind. When I think of the word, oh, there's fire, there's lava, there's a, um, some sort of beast, we'd call him Satan, flying around with wings. Um, and he, of course, he has in his hand a pitchfork. And what's interesting about that is, um, the, where does that come from? Like we think, don't we always imagine, maybe not always, but like the cartoons imagine a little devil with a little pitchfork. I mean, if you dress your kid up as the devil, of course, he needs to have a little pitchfork in his hand, Right? I mean, that's what we dressed up Jay last, last year's Halloween, and I'm just kidding. We didn't dress him up. Gosh, everybody lighten up. Um, what was Jay? Oh, he's a little fisherman. That's what we did last year. He was a lion and a fisherman. Um, anyway, so we didn't dress him up as Satan. But if we did, he would have a little pitchfork, because that is quintessentially what the devil has in his hand, right? But I think it comes from um, a, a wrong impression of a, a text of Scripture, Matthew, uh, excuse me, Luke 3. Excuse me. Luke 3, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and the judgment that will come. And he says that he, talking about Jesus, not Satan, has the pitchfork or the windowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into the barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So to separate the wheat from the chaff, you use some sort of farming device like a pitchfork or a winnowing fork. And who has that? It's Jesus, God, um, not the devil. So I think sometimes we give like de- the devil this place of like honor or reign in hell. And it's like, where did that come from? Because it seems like to me that God is sovereign in the Bible. Can I get an amen? So like, where's this idea of like Satan with all this power over hell? Because if we read some scriptures, and we will today, about like Satan gets cast down. He's the one getting punished there. First and foremost, it's like he's not reigning down there. He's not, um, he's not the one with the pitchfork. It's God who is in control. I put a very questionable quote on the back of your skillet today, or we call it notes, back of the notes today, if you got a notes um, it's, a, it's a quote by Satan, so that's what's questionable about it. Um, and it's uh, not, not in the Bible. This isn't a quote from the Bible and what Satan says. This is a quote from a pretty famous poem called Paradise Lost by John Milton, who wrote um, in the 1600s as a Puritan, 1700s. Anybody read this in high school or just for fun? Quite a few of you. And in that text is this dialogue between Satan and Beelzebub in Book 1, line 260-something. And where Satan says, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Have you heard that quote before? It's probably one of the most quoted lines of the Paradise Lost. And people like it. I mean, I, I saw it on the, I, I typed in that quote on the internet and tons of people are like, this is my favorite quote. I love this quote because I'd rather reign in hell 
than to serve in heaven. And what's interesting is so many people misquoted it. Um, th- did you know, this is a little English grammar lesson for you really quickly, but there's a pretty big difference between the word then and the word than. Do you know that? And I see you misspelling it all the time on your Facebook statuses, and I want to I want to point out your error and correct you, but then it seems so rude, um, so I don't. Um, but then is in reference to time, like, uh, let's see, I have coffee and water up here, so I will drink coffee, then I will drink water, right? Then. Um, but, but a comparison, you'd use then. Coffee is better <laughs> than water for waking up in the morning or whatever, right? <laughs> There's people applauding grammar lessons. <laughs> yeah, preach it. Come on. Um, so what's interesting about this quote, and I see it misquoted all the time. If you look it up on the internet, you could Google it right now. Um, put in like, I'd rather, better do rain in heaven. And then almost all of them will say than, and, like A-N, like a comparison. But what this quote says, um, I think John Milton as a, as a Christian um, and um, a Puritan was, was trying to emphasize God's sovereignty here that maybe Satan for a time will reign somewhere in hell, hell on earth or whatever, but then he will serve just as everyone will serve and bow down before God, um, this, this bigger idea of God's sovereignty. So anyways, to clear up some uh, misconceptions about hell, I don't think we have a picture of hell where Satan is like reigning or um, in, in the text of scripture where like as the king with a pitchfork of hell. But it seems like hell is really a place, if you read the text in scripture, prepared for the devil, for him to suffer in, not for him to reign in. So that's um, an interesting image of hell. Some of them, somebody said, Dan Porter said um, that, that hell could be the absence of God, the absence of the presence of God. And I think I like that up to a point theologically as a description of what hell could be like or what it is. Um, but I would still say God is still sovereign. And so it's not like he's, we would limit his omnipresence-ness. Is that a word? Omnipresence? Um, just to say that, that God isn't in hell. But I, I do think there's something to be said about the, the absence of maybe his presence, like his who he is and not his being because he is omnipresent everywhere. So he, it's like he doesn't know what's going on in hell. So no, he knows what's going on because he's, he's all-knowing and omnipresent. Um, but this idea of like a separation from God and maybe his um, spirit, maybe his presence um, is one way to think about it. And lots of you raised your hand when you said that. C.S. Lewis um, in the book, The Great Divorce, pictured uh, hell as this gray town like in the absence of, of God, absence of goodness that God has created in a just meek, drab, gray town. It's, it's like a, a lacking of, of the goodness of God and his presence. Another description of hell is like an ending of your being and who you are. It's called, the theological term, annihilationism. It's a big word, so I put it up there for you. Um, anybody familiar with this? Um, lots of you are. It's, it's this concept, this idea that... Um, so maybe, so some people say hell is a conscious, eternal torment. Like you're aware of it and you're being tormented consciously um, somehow for, the, for eternity. And some people would say, well, maybe there's text of scripture that would, what would lean to 
some sort of annihilationism, meaning you're annihilated. Your soul, your body, your existence, your presence is just annihilated. Like there's, there's an end to you, and that's what hell is, like an ending. Um, and, and sometimes people who are annihilationists would refer to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Um, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of those of the one. Excuse me, I'm stumbling all over this. Uh, rather, be afraid. It's going to say, like meaning of God. Be afraid of God. The one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so if you're an annihilationist, you would say, well, that's what hell is. The total destruction of both body and soul and an ending of who you are. Um, that's interesting. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at what hell could be like is an idea that N.T. Wright, uh, a scholar um, who wrote the, the book uh, Surprised by Hope. Anybody familiar with that book? A couple hands. Um, it's a pretty cool book in that he just kind of just turns the, the tables on, on different understandings of what we think hell, heaven, the afterlife is going to be like and says, well, let's look biblically about all these descriptions and maybe think through like some of the images, like maybe the devil with the pitchfork is just kind of a misunderstanding and what our culture says what hell will be like. But let's really look at what hell will be like. Anyways, he, one of his ideas is this idea that maybe hell will be like uh, a human being losing the image of God that is inside of them. So like a degration of your existence, of your humanness, and of your of the image of God that is inside of you. That's just one idea. And so we have to line up a bunch of things, I think, in the text of Scripture that are said about hell, descriptions of what hell is like, and maybe get rid of some of the misconceptions of what hell is like. So the first misconception, um, I think people say this all the time. I've probably been guilty of saying this because I've heard it so many times. Have you heard someone say, well, Jesus talked more about hell than of heaven? Anybody hear that said? I mean, I've probably been guilty of saying it before I actually looked it up. And is that really true? Did Jesus really talk about hell more than heaven? And if you look at the text in Scripture, um, and you, th- I just, these numbers represent uh, the King James Version uh, of Scripture. And if you look up the word hell and heaven in the Bible, and you just list how many times they're in the Bible, well, in the whole Bible, heaven is 691, hell is only 54. In the New Testament, 227 for the word heaven, and only 23 for hell and King James Version. And finally, the Gospels, 21 times, 100, excuse me, 121 times, heaven is mentioned and hell is only mentioned 15 times as a word in the King James Version. So however you look at it, I think maybe the better quote that I, that I sometimes hear is Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person. It's like, okay, well, that's true. But that, you know, that's probably true about a lot of things in the text of Scripture because we have so much text of Jesus speaking. So you could say, well, Jesus spoke more about birds than any other person. It's like, well, yeah, he spoke more about lots of things. Um, so anyways, uh, we do have these descriptions of hell, but I want to get rid of one other misunderstanding before we turn to the text of Scripture um, and this idea of, did Jesus go to hell? So we know the story of Jesus dying on the cross and then um, the Apostles' Creed says it like this. Here's the Apostles' Creed. It starts off with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It gets down to, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then he descended into hell. And then it goes on to say, on the third day he rose again, and will, uh, rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. That's the rest of uh, the Apostles' Creed there. 
But this idea of he descended into hell. Has anybody else ever been tripped up by that? You're like saying the Apostles' Creed, then you get to that point and you're like, wait, really? Like that's what, he went to hell? Um, because in our mind, we picture, at least I do, I mean, if I'm honest about like what comes to mind first when I think of the word hell, I imagine lava and fire and a devil with a pitchfork poking people. It's like, oh, so, so when Jesus died, he went down there and then the devil was like jabbing him and he's like in some lava. I mean, just being honest, like that's what I imagine. Like, oh, he descended into hell. Um, that's what I imagine. Getting pitchforked with some lava and some fire. Um, it's like, was that where Jesus went? Is that what the Apostles' Creed says? Do, do all Christians really believe that that's what happened? And I think it just comes from that misunderstanding, comes from our misunderstanding of the English word hell and what we imagine as a culture, as Christians. And I think there's a lot of myth and legend about what hell will be like. And so the real, the Greek, as I looked this up one time because someone asked me, online. Sometimes I get a lot of questions. People ask questions to like newlifechurch.org and sometimes I get those fun questions. Um, So anyways, one of them was, do do we really believe that Jesus went to hell? And I was like, that's interesting. Yeah, I've never questioned that or researched that. And so I researched it and found this Greek. If you're a Greek scholar, you know uh, maybe how to pronounce some of those words up there. Um, But it's katalothata esta katalotata is, is probably a horrible pronunciation of that even after two years of Greek. Um, But anyways, what that means is literally, if we're looking at like the literal word-for-word translation of that phrase, he descended into hell. We could literally say he went down to the down place. Like the word Gehenna isn't there, the word Sheol, the word Hades, uh, those other words that are sometimes translated as hell aren't there. And it just literally, you could say he went down to the down place, which is just kind of very ambiguous about like, what happened to him after death. But it goes on to say, I think that, that that translation of he went down to the down place just like is anonymous, synonymous with he really died and he entered into death. Like he truly died. He was not just resuscitated three days later after being in a weakened state. No, he truly died. He went down to the death. He died and went down to the down place. And there's no description. I mean, by saying hell in English, all, I imagine all of our imaginations start running wild with like Jesus getting pitchforked in lava and like a lake of fire and all these weeping, like Jesus was weeping and gnashing of teeth and the devil's pitchforking him. Um, is that what happened? No, th- th- this isn't a description of hell. This is just he truly died. So I wanted to clear up that analogy only to get to the word hell and to say that hell is a bad word. And I'll describe what I mean by that. And I don't really mean that it's a cuss word. However, it kind of is a cuss word. How many of you were not allowed to say the word hell growing up? Look at if, like everybody. Who was allowed? Like, who was allowed? Yeah, mom's perfectly okay with you saying, what the H, mom? <laughs> it's like, I don't think so. I don't think your mom let you say that. Um, or what the H-E double hockey sticks is wrong with you? Did you ever say that one? <laughs> um, it's, it's not a very good word. Um, and some of you maybe struggle with cussing, and that's, I mean, you laugh now, but it's like half of you in here are like, yeah, what the H, man. Um, I just remember a time, I was going to seminary, and like a leader at, at the mill, and I was working construction. If anybody work construction? There's a lot of really awesome guys you get to work with when you work construction. Um, I was working construction part-time, and they would swear, at, they weren't even mad, and they'd just be cussing. That's like just how they talked. Like, hey, hand me that SOB right there. And he's like, what? Like, he's talking about the hammer, but he, he can't even, 
like words have no description. So you're just like cussing um, constantly to describe things and describe how to do things. And they're not even mad. They're just cussing. Um, that's just how they talk. And so I, like I, for like a year or two, like working with these guys, like here I was a church leader and going to seminary and just like uh, just sometimes just start cussing. And it was like, oh, I mean, uh, that's not what I meant. Um, sorry. And it's just like, it's just not a very glorifying way to talk. Anyways, that's rabbit trail. Um, hell is a bad word, not as a cuss word. I'll let you make up your own decision whether you want to use hell as a cuss word or not. I think you shouldn't, but if you wanted to, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's a bad word because these couple reasons. There's too much baggage if we use the word hell. Way too much. You think of the place of hell, you think of pitchforks, maybe you think a lot, too much theological baggage, too much non-biblical baggage of what this word means. It's just kind of a bad word. You, you say it, and different people picture different things. Um, no specific meaning. Like, oh, uh, what do you really mean when you say hell? Do you mean annihilationism? Do you mean uh, degradation of the human spirit inside of you? Do you mean uh, a place of torment? Do you mean a place of fire? Uh, what, do, what do you really mean? No specific meaning. Uh, lots of Christian mythology uh, of things that are in hell and these images that we have uh, and lacking etymology. Etymology is the, the study of a word. And if you look up this word hell, there's just lots of um, misunderstandings and no direct data of like where this word even comes from. Like the old English word, possibly that the, the word hell comes from is H-E-L-L-E. I'm not sure how you would say that, hell-y. Um, <laughs> and it comes from just the idea of being hidden, like a hidden place. Uh, maybe an old Norse word means uh, hellar, H-E-L-L-I-R, uh, just means the word cave. So like a cave, a hidden place. Is that what we mean when we say the word hell? Well, not really. What, what does it mean? What are the things described in the Bible um, when we get to this word? So um, I'm going to give you more descriptive terms for this English word hell. And it, I think it'd be cool if we stopped using the word hell and use some of these more specific, um, less baggage-filled words to help us understand this place of judgment. Because today, at the end of Sunday school, I'm going to get to this real idea that, that in the end, when we die, there will be judgment. And there's lots the Bible has to say about judgment. But let's look at the descriptions of at least make better descriptions of this word hell. I'm going to give you seven of them. So if you're taking notes, I have seven different um, points for different descriptions used in the new, mainly new, but one in the Old Testament of the word, the English word hell. So when you come across that in the Bible, you're reading along and you see the word hell, well, of course, you know that the Bible wasn't originally written in English, right? You knew that. So what word is it in the Greek or the Hebrew, that, that these concepts that we are now translating as the word hell? Well, there's maybe more than seven, but these are the most popular seven. When you get to the word hell in the English text, what is it referring to? Well, the first one that I'm going to mention, uh, these are in no particular order. However, this one is probably the word of choice. When Jesus, whenever Jesus uses the word hell, it's almost always this word, uh, the Greek word Gehenna. Have you, have you heard that word before? Been familiar? It's lots of people are. So um, what is Gehenna? Um, well, it comes, the etymology of this word is kind of interesting because it's, uh, it's potentially before Jesus' time. Jesus was, at the time of Jesus, Jesus was using this word maybe as a figurative spiritual place, an idea. 
but it goes back in etymology to a Jewish, a real place, um, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, like uh, the Valley of Hinnom. And the picture on your notes is a literal place, um, is somewhere outside of Jerusalem, where there's lots of different theories on like why this place would be synonymous with a place of suffering and torment and death. Um, one idea is that this is, where, this is like an old trash heap, a place where like if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd bring your trash. I mean, to, for us today, they just take it and they bring it to a magical trash place. So, I mean, right? I mean, where does trash go? Um, <laughs> right? I mean, if, is anyone really? Like, to the dump. It's like, but have you ever, has anybody been to the dump? Like what? Oh, you have? All right. It's a real place. <laughs> anyway, I just magically thought they just took it and it went away. Um, <laughs> but potentially Gehenna is, like, the Valley of Hinnom is a literal, like in the ancient world, ancient Jerusalem, where they would bring their trash and maybe they would burn the trash and be rotting things and gross things. And Jesus uses this word to describe hell. Um, maybe it was a place that, um, the Valley of Hinnom was a place where sacrifices to gods would happen. Um, sacrifices of children sacrificed to Molech, um, I saw in some of the research of where the etymology of this word came from. So Jesus uses this word when he says things like uh, Matthew 5.22, whoever uh, calls someone you fool will be liable to go to hell, is what we usually translate it as, but the word there is Gehenna. When Jesus says, uh, rather fear who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Uh, better to enter life with one eye than two eyes and to be thrown into Gehenna. That's the word there. And 12 times that is used in the New Testament. So that if we started using the word Gehenna, I think there's maybe less baggage than our word hell. Um, and it'd just be interesting, like what, because uh, the concepts of Gehenna are very different than like a lake of fire, but that's used as well. And so I don't know, maybe this lesson will just confuse you a little more. And maybe that's a good thing. I think hell, sometimes we think we have things all figured out as Christians. We're like, here's what it is. There's going to be fire, a one level of fire, then a level of lava, and you'll be injected into that level of... It's like, how do you know all that? Um, what, how do you really know what hell will be like? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Um, so this is one of the more specific terms for hell. Six more to go. The next one is Sheol slash Hades, two different words. Sheol is the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament. Hades is a Greek word used in the New Testament. And we talked about these terms last week when we talked about the intermediate state. Because sometimes these terms are used for like a place that we go when we die that's somewhat neutral. Like Sheol in the, in the Hebrew, Hades, the underworld in this Greek philosophical or mythological idea of the underworld is just kind of a neutral place. Like everybody goes to this place of death, Sheol and Hades. The grave is sometimes what it is translated. Like the David says, you know, the Lord will not abandon me in the grave. Well, that word is Sheol in the Hebrew. Um, and so what is this place like? Um, well, it's the place of death. It's, it's the underworld in the Greek mythology. It's a place where everyone goes. And maybe there's, um, we read this text last week, this, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And um, is that, are they both in Hades? And then there's a section of Hades where the rich man is suffering. And then, there, then there's um, Abraham's side, and that's where Lazarus is. And that seems pretty nice. Um, what is Sheol and Hades really like? Well, 
I don't know. I mean, there's descriptions in the Greek mythology. There's descriptions uh, in other Hebrew texts. But it seems kind of like a neutral place. It doesn't seem that bad. Um, But there is another place within Sheol and Hades, and that is Tartarus, which is used once in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And that word there is Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be in to be held for judgment, which is kind of interesting because most people think, oh, when the angels sinned, God threw them to earth, and here the demons are. That's how demons got here. Um, but it's interesting that, that this verse says that they were sent to the English word hell, the Greek word Tartarus, like this place in Greek mythology where it's like a lower level of Hades, where people, where they were chained, and there's darkness, and there's suffering, and there's torment. Um, but that, that word's only used once in the New Testament. But kind of an interesting word used there. Um, number four is going to be the abyss. Used about eight times in the context of the New Testament. Like in Revelation 20, it says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss. Well, that sounds like a pretty bad place, a bottomless pit kind of place is the idea there. And it's used eight times. There's really no descriptions of what's going on in the abyss other than it sounds like a very deep hole with no bottom and a pretty bad place to be. Uh, Another term or a phrase used for hell is this description of a lake of fire. There's two of these uh, times that it's used and we read them this morning uh, in Revelation chapter 20, the lake of fire, the second death that Hades and death are thrown into the lake of fire. So it's here we have this, you know, Hades and death are thrown into the lake of fire. Is that literal? Is that figurative? I mean, to me, it sounds very figurative and, and allegorical of, of God reigning over death and this place of death and throwing it into even further judgment of the lake of fire. Um, and then there's another verse. This one always is fun to think about. Um, <laughs> not fun. In the, it's just interesting to think about, I guess. Not fun. Um, word choice there, uh, this idea of prison. And there's a verse in 1 Peter 3 that talks about Jesus going and, and speaking or preaching to the spirits in hell is usually what it's translated to in the English. Have you, are you familiar with that passage? Anybody ever like thought like, that's a really weird passage. Let me read it for you. Uh, for Christ died for the sins once and for all. So this is 1 Peter 3, starting in 18. The righteous and the unrighteous to bring you to God... He was put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. And that Greek word there just means like a jailhouse or a jail. So spirits in prison, Jesus preached to them. And who are they? Well, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built? It's like, what in the world? Like, there was this underworld or this, I mean, it's very, not very descriptive of all, just this place, this jail, this prison where spirits went. And then Jesus went down there to preach to them, um, which is just kind of mind-blowing if, if you're uh, a pretty quintessential, like, Protestant, evangelical, American Christian that just thinks, oh, as soon as you die, you either go to heaven or to hell for all eternity. Well, it seems like there's more going on in the afterlife. If, if Jesus is able to go preach to people who lived in the Old Testament, that's kind of interesting. Um, it kind of you know, blows the idea out of the water that you know, once you die, it's either heaven or hell for all eternity. 
like we talked about last time. What about the intermediate state? What about waiting for the resurrection or waiting for judgment? Um, So that's kind of interesting. One more. Number seven is a place that Jesus mentions this phrase, the outer darkness. And it's usually synonymous with the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like, that's a horrible image of like crying and then like gnashing your teeth, like, um, I'm in pain, like gnashing of teeth. What, that's just a, a horrible, the outer dark, it sounds scary. Weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds horrible. Um, and Jesus says it sometimes, like uh, Matthew 8, 11, he's, he's talking to the centurion, this Roman centurion who is not a Jewish person. Uh, and the centurion wants him to go heal um, someone, is it, is it his daughter or a servant? I think it's a servant. Um, but, but he says, you don't even have to come home to heal this person. You could just say the word and, and, you know, they'll be healed. And Jesus says, no, you know, I've seen no greater faith in all of Israel. So this Gentile, this Roman has no greater faith. You know, he's the most faithful in all of Israel, which is a huge slam, by the way, to God's people, Israel. But that's kind of the point. And he says this, verse 11 in Matthew 8, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this idea that non-Jews in the Old Testament, it's a pretty beautiful picture of people from all over the world, the east, the west. You know, I think of, what about the Native Americans? What about those people living in China? And here we have this history of the Old Testament in Israel, and, and maybe they're included in this idea of coming from the east and west and taking place with the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But then it says this, but then the subjects of the kingdom, so I think he's talking about the Israelites who came to a, a place of disbelief in their own God, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And most people compare that to the English word hell and what that would be like, a weeping and gnashing of teeth, a um, outer darkness. And so take a, take a step back, figuratively, um, and look at this. Like, here's seven different ideas, each of them very different from the other. Well, maybe not very different, but independent of each other. Like, different descriptions of what these places are like. I think of Sheol, Hades, a very neutral place, being compared with outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like a very horrible place. Or this idea of Gehenna, a literal place where there's trash and maybe trash was burned and human sacrifices of Gehenna compared to an endless pit of the abyss. They're all pretty negative um, or neutral like Sheol and Hades. Um, and so whenever we take a step back and talk about hell, I think there's probably some of you in here that are just like, don't mess with me and my theology of hell because maybe in your mind, your theology of hell and the afterlife eschatology is so wrapped up with soteriology salvation. And so you think immediately, you think Jesus saved us. Well, what does that mean? Well, he saved us from hell. And you're just like synonymous with being saved is this idea that he saved you from a torture in the afterlife. And I'm, I'm, what we, you know, do sometimes as theologians and especially systematic theologians, as, as you're being trained to be, if you've been coming to the Mill Sunday School, is to sometimes separate and sometimes that's important to separate salvation from eschatology for just a minute. To think through, 
okay, what is eschatology, like afterlife and heaven and hell, intermediate states, the end times? Let's talk about all that. Then, you know, let's talk about salvation and what that means for today. I mean, I think when we talked about soteriology a few months ago, we brought up this idea that we need to enter, unlock these two principles of salvation and eschatology, talk about them each as their own subjects, then bring them together and say, well, what does that mean for the afterlife? Because I think if you were to look at this and start questioning hell and what hell could be in the descriptions of hell, um, I have this phrase um, that I think is very true for a lot of people, that is getting rid of hell, the concept of hell, usually leads to universalism. And I don't think that should be the case. I don't think that we as Christians doing this this morning of like looking at different descriptions of hell should just think, uh, well, maybe since there's different descriptions, we should just throw out the whole idea of hell altogether. Throw out the whole idea of an afterlife of torment for people that have done horrible things on earth and, and, and do not have salvation. We should just throw out the whole idea and become universalists. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying let's separate the ideas of salvation from heaven and hell. Let's, let's not make them synonymous with each other. Because I think if you do that, um, if you just say salvation is only to get you out of hell, well then your salvation kind of looks like a card like this. A Monopoly card that says get out of hell free card. You know, like if you do an altar call, you make Jesus your Lord and Savior. If you pray the sinner's prayer, then you are figuratively given a figurative card like this. A get out of hell free card. And you hold this card until needed or sold which would be weird to sell, but um, you keep it until you're needed. And it's like, when is it going to be needed? What's well, going to be needed when you die? And so you keep that figurative card on you at all times. And then when you die, you give that card to God and he says, sweet, you get to come into the kingdom. And that's, if that's all you think about when you think of salvation, if that's all your mind will imagine when, when someone says, are you saved? All you think about is a card that keeps you out of hell. Well, that's, honestly a little sad. Like, what about now? What about the life now that Christ has saved you? What about the reality of you being saved from your sins now on this earth, in this place, here and now, and how your life should and very well, you know, could look very different than people who are not saved. And so I don't want, by by thinking about hell, questioning concepts, questioning descriptions of hell, I don't at all want us to be Become universalist, and that so often happens. Um, lots of you remember two years ago when a book came out written by this guy named Rob Bell. Here he is with a sweet haircut. He's got the blonde tips. Um, uh, blonde tips. Uh, Rob Bell's Love Wins. Do you remember when the figurative poop hit the figurative fan when this book came out? Anybody? Like it was all, it was in the news, Time Magazine, and Secular News, CNN articles. Um, in the Christian world, there was people that were like, ah, Rob Bell's not too bad. And then there's other people who's like, Rob Bell's going to hell if he says there's no hell. Um, and it's like people really took a side of, of, yes, you're okay with Rob Bell, or you think he's the biggest heretic ever in the entire world. Uh, people really got divided over this issue. And here's the book. Um, and it's, love, it's a very small book. And if you wanted to read it, it's only like a couple, it's like a hundred pages, but each page is it's like, kind of like poems, kind of how he writes. Um, like here's one sentence. Imagine, period. <laughs> okay? Right. 
Um, anyways, so it's a very short, you could probably read it in like a couple hours. You read it pretty easily in an afternoon. And there's two points. Um, there's his eschatological ideas that are in the book, and there's his soteriological ideas in the book. And some, I think, some of what he does in the book is just what I did in this lesson today, bring up descriptions eschatologically of what hell is like. And it's like, do we really think that hell is uh, lava and, and a devil with a pitchfork? Well, no, let's read what the Bible has to say and the biblical descriptions of all these different places, the Greek and Hebrew words. Um, then he goes on to talk about soteriology, how salvation works. And he, I think it's here that he gets in a lot of trouble. It's here that I, I would have the most disagreements with what he says in the book. Um, and by the way, he doesn't really say it. I think that's, he, he asks questions. Um, I thought it would be interesting to go through this book. It would take a lot of time and count the number of periods and count the number of question marks and to see, I would imagine that there's more question marks in this book, literally, than periods in the book. I would love for some, it would take a couple days to do that. Um, and it's not, it's not even popular as a book anymore. It's like when it came out, it would have been cool to have that number. Um, but there's a lot of, he asks questions like, what if there's a second chance in the afterlife? What if there's even more chances and even more afterlifes? So he asks, he's not saying reincarnation, but that's kind of like, like, dude, you're kind of saying it, but you're not because you're asking it in the form of a question. And that's where I would disagree with, with Rob. Um, uh, just, and, and he's not saying anything. He's just asking questions. And it's like, well, anyways, he's hard to disagree with because he doesn't say anything. He just asks questions. Um, but that's why it, and the book got him into tons of controversy with Christians when it came out, mainly over people just said, oh, well, Rob Bell doesn't think there's a hell. And that's really not what he said, but he does ask questions about, is it eternal conscious torment? Uh, he, he brings up the idea of, is it annihilationism um, and the ending? Is it uh, a, maybe a, a, a torture and a, a time of torment so that you could eventually repent and then enter the kingdom? Um, those are all great questions. Um, I just think that there's a lot of controversy because people's soteriology is so entrapped with eschatology. Um, and and maybe, maybe it would do good for us to separate them a little bit and say, you know, salvation is more than just a get out of hell free card. It is something for this world and this place. Salvation does mean that as a church, we can do things on this earth and make this place a better place. Um, all that to say, I want to read and close with this scripture. Um, you can turn to it yourself. This is a pretty humbling passage. And I, I close with it because... Um, there is a warning that takes place in the Bible again and again and again that there, is, there will be people who, are, people who die and then look back on their lives and say, man, if only I had known. You know, I think about that in the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man's like, if only I had known that, that there would be torment in the afterlife for all of my sins and not taking care of the poor, not taking care of Lazarus. If only I would have known it's like, well, you had the law and the prophets is what happens in this parable. Um, so this passage is another parable about the sheep and the goats, figurative sheep and figurative goats being separated and being called one to darkness and one to light. And I want to read this passage and we'll close in prayer right after I read it. And it's this, it's this warning to us as, as Christians to live this life as if it does count, as if like it really does. And so I encourage you, Yes, there is a warning. There is an afterlife of um, you know, Jesus himself refers to it as some sort of torment 
for those that did not live according to the ways of the Father, the ways of God. And so let's consider these, these very humble words of Jesus. In Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, it's a pretty awesome picture, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, those are the sheep, um, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's pretty awesome. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then those righteous people, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king God, Jesus, the Son of Man, he, he replies, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And here's the other part, the, the, the goats, the very humbling part. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. When I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for, for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. So Father, we pray to you now and, and these words are a warning. These words are to us as, gosh, we, may we never live like that. May we never make decisions that, that we would choose to dishonor you and your name because of we, we choose to to dishonor people around us, the poor, the oppressed, the, the poor among us. God, we take full warning of these words that you're giving us here. And as we consider and as we stop and as we pray to you, God, would you comfort us where we need comfort as we think about the afterlife? Would you warn us where we need to be warned about the afterlife? Father, we, we do love you. We praise you as the sovereign, holy God that you are. And we put our trust in you and and you alone. So we worship you and we praise you, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.